The Bob Murphy Show, episode 194. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show this is going to be an unusual one What I'm going to do in this episode is explain two ideas that I actually first discussed, if that's the right verb to use, in the novel that I wrote when I was in grad school. So some of you longtime fans may remember way back when I was writing for many outlets at the time and Rob Moody was the one who ran, it's called Strike the Root. And we just ran this novel called Minerva in a serialized fashion, right? So after I had written it, then every chapter we released sequentially at strikethroot.com. And so that was a, that was a fun time. I went back and looked at some of it not too long ago and it's i uh, I'm glad I wrote it. It's a fun story. There's some cool stuff in there, but if I'm going to write a sequel, I'll be older and wiser. I understand people better, that sort of thing. In any event, I want to just relay two of the things that I talked about in that novel showing how a voluntary society. And by the way, I hemmed and hawed, like, what should I call Because typically I call a free society. But I think that that word freedom, it just means so many things to so many people that it's just more precise and it communicates where I'm coming from better if I talk about a voluntary society. How a voluntary society would handle issues such as naval blockades imposed by a powerful state and also uh, related things like public goods problems, but then also immigration, right? Like what, what would happen in a totally voluntary society where there's, you know, every piece of property is owned by somebody and there's lots of foreigners who want to come in. What exactly what would happen? How, how would, how would that unfold? Especially the, on the latter question, the basic idea I had when I wrote Minerva is, is still, I think, correct. But I have more nuance now with it because I think partly because I understand how whole life insurance contracts work now, whereas I didn't understand that when I was in grad school. And so for whatever reason, I was just thinking about it the other day. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and turn on the microphone and record this as an episode because I think the, I think the folks would like to hear this. Okay. So as far as in general, public goods problems, right? Like things where, gee, if some company were to spend a bunch of money doing something, it would shower benefits on lots of people in society, but yet it's kind of tricky to charge them for it because it's the sort of thing that once it's paid for, you can't really limit the benefits only to the people who paid and not to the, the free riders. Okay, so standard things would be, oh, gee, if there's a foreign country that's pointing nuclear missiles, notice I didn't say nuclear. I've been corrected by 
Tom Woods on that. So I say nuclear, uh, nuclear missiles pointed at the free society or voluntary society. And, you know, we have the technology and we're very rich, right? Because it's a voluntary society. There's no taxes. Everything is win-win. So it's a booming economy, very high standard of living and so forth. So we certainly know how to build missile defense, you know, put satellites up there with lasers, whatever, sharks with laser beams, all kinds of stuff that we could use to stop it. But the problem is those systems, those defensive systems are expensive. And for something, you know, it's not like you're guarding against a burglar for an incoming hydrogen bomb. If your neighbor contributed and is going to be protected, well, then you're probably safe too, because an incoming hydrogen bomb, if it's going to not hurt your neighbor, it's not hurting you either. Right. So that's a classic example of what economists call a public good defense from something like a nuclear attack. Other examples would be things like protection from pollution. Right. And, and so here, I mean, this, the concepts of negative and positive externalities, if you know those terms, also get all bundled up into this stuff. But in this framework saying, yeah, if, if all the companies in a certain region just agreed to not emit so much uh, soot, then the air would be cleaner and everybody would be happy and or happier. And uh, it could be that if the people in the region, like how much they would be willing to pay to get the clean air versus the dirty air, it might make sense. You know, it might, in other words, the amount they would be willing to pay to have really pristine air as opposed to, you know, air that is like what Beijing was like in 1985 or something, that that would be enough payment so that the companies would all agree, oh yeah, if we were paid this amount, we would gladly change our production techniques so that we didn't emit so much, you know, harmful stuff into the atmosphere. But if you just have voluntary contracts and, and let's, suppose that the, the in the legal system, you know, you, you can't sue a company to stop them from doing it. So that might be one solution. But my point with this episode is to say, even if this weren't a solution, it's still fine. The voluntary society is not just going to sit there and be like, Ooh, I guess we got to sit here and breathe this dirty air. Okay. So cause in this elegant solution that I'm going to give in a minute. All right. So you can imagine a situation like that where, Oh gee, it's tricky. And you know, the standard Coasean type of approach, not that Ronald Coase himself said this, but people who were inspired by his work might just say, oh, well, then you just, you know, have a contract, contractual arrangements between all 17 million residents of the region and all 3,600 companies. And, and But, well, that's kind of unwieldy, All right? And again, the, so the problem is, unless it really is just illegal to do it, or, you know, there could be a court injunction, it's tricky because if enough of your neighbors basically bribe the company to not pollute the air, well, then you get to enjoy the clean air too. It's not that only the people who paid get the clean air and the people who didn't decide to contribute to the effort are stuck with the smog, right? It's kind of an all or nothing thing. Everybody's breathing the same air. Another example would be something like a fireworks show, right? Like, oh, maybe everybody in a certain region would gladly kick in $5 or a certain weight of silver, let's say, because they wouldn't use those filthy dollars to support that every, well, it wouldn't be the 4th of July, would it? <laughs> it would be some other holiday where they maybe won their independence from the United States government, who knows? But to have a big fireworks show, right? And the amount, if everybody were willing to contribute that small amount, that would be more than enough to pay for it. 
for like the really a really great show that everybody would again be happy. But then again, the problem is, well, if there were the initial equilibrium, it wouldn't be an equilibrium in the Nash sense, because then some people would say, well, if the show's going to happen, what if I don't contribute next year? Let's say, you know, they're still going to write my little token contribution doesn't decide the matter one way or the other. But then lots of people start doing that. You know, so you get those sorts of issues. Okay, so. Again, there's numerous ways this could happen. So I'm not saying my suggestion is what would carry the day in reality, in the real world. I'm just saying it would not be the case that the voluntary society, at least, you know, if it had a decent number of people in developed financial markets and things like that, but it, but it would if we're imagining a first world country decides, you know, they read Rothbard and decide, hey, let's try NCAP philosophies and let's, let's do this. Right. So again, with all these things, when you're talking about social institutions and what's better or worse, you got to do an apples to apples comparison. So yeah, what I'm going to talk about here might not have worked on day three of Somalia or Somalian anarchy, but neither did, you know, giving them the Federalist Papers wouldn't have helped on day three of their anarchy either. Okay. And so we have to just always assume the same level of technology, cultural attitudes, you know, proclivity to using violence to solve problems, respect for property rights, blah, blah, blah. For a given group of people, them obeying property rights and, you know, voluntary measures will yield a better outcome. That's the claim of the standard anarcho-capitalist. And so here, like I say, if we have in mind a society where they have standards of living, like in Western Europe or the United States and Canada, things like that, and then if they were to just get rid of any coercive state apparatus, how could they solve these problems? Okay, so again, it's not going to be an outcome where they're always going to be sitting around going, oh yeah, we got to breathe this dirty air because even though we would all totally be willing to pay a little bit more for our products or pay a little bit more just as direct side payments to companies so they put in, you know, filters into their smokestacks and whatever to, to grab the stuff as it's going out that we just no it, it just won't work because there's always going to be that one rogue company that's going to cut costs and sell tvs for a little bit less while they're dumping all kinds of stuff into the atmosphere and if for whatever reason the legal system the way that the common law developed in this region says nope that's the factory or they were there first they homesteaded it and you later comers you know, you can't say that you have a right to clean air because that's just not the way our property law developed. Okay. And so I'm saying they wouldn't just sit there. Ah, I guess we got to just breathe smog forever. If only we could have an EPA, but nothing else, right? That's where we draw the line. We would be better off. That's not going to happen. Okay. So here's what would work. And the, in the novel, the so Minerva was an island and they end up going to war with, you know, big governments and they're they're blockaded at some point so oil prices are really high in minerva they're way above world prices and so you know, the question is well what how would someone have an incentive to break the blockade right to deal with this and so one of the characters is a very enterprising man and he you know he knows how to do it technically right like he has ships and things that can evade blockade you know fast cargo merchant ships, you know, the, the naval equivalent of the Millennium Falcon. And he also has some other tricks up his sleeve, which I won't 
disclose to you in case some of you want to go read the thing. But the question is, but it costs money to do that, right? Like he's going to have to spend the equivalent of at least hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to really do it right because he's up against, you know, some of the world's toughest navies. And so how is he going to pull this off? How is he going to turn a profit from doing this? And so one thing he realizes is, oh, if I break the blockade, oil prices in Minerva will crash. And so then he says, so what he ends up doing is he buys a bunch of put options on oil, you know, in the Minervan financial markets. And so in case you don't know what that is, and I'll, I'll put a link, folks. So this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 194 to I, a while ago, I wrote a bunch of, I wrote like a three-part series for Mises.org on the social function of stock speculators, forward and futures contracts, and call and put options, I think. So... Basically, the idea is you can see how if he sold oil short, that would work, right? So he's, if oil, there's a way that you can benefit. So obviously, if he just bought oil and then the price went up, then he benefits from it, right? He buys low and sells high. But what he would be doing if he's successful and, you know, by, by him spending money in certain ways, if he can change the future and make it so now a lot more oil can get in, and get, you know, get around the blockade that the Western powers in this story have set up around this little anarchist island, then oil prices are going to crash. And so the question is, how does, he, how does he benefit from that? And so if what you really are betting on, let's say, to speak colloquially, is not even just like, oh, well, I think oil prices are going to go down, and so I want to benefit from that. So you could sell it short. But what if it's more like you, you're really betting that, no, I think oil prices are going to go down by 80% and I know when. And they're going to go down 80% starting next February. Okay, because again, if I don't want to give away too much, but what this guy thought of doing, and he, and he was loaded, like he had the money to spend on the front end. What he was going to do in the store, like he, he knew the timing. It's not just that he knew, oh, at some point oil is going to be somewhat cheaper no, he had a much more specific idea of what was going to happen. And his view differed from the market consensus at that point. And so the way you really fine-tune your predictions is you don't just sell short. You buy derivative contracts, like things like you, you could do, you could sell futures contracts or forward contracts, you know, dated a certain time. But to even really get more aggressive, it's you sell a put option. So a put option gives you the ability to sell an asset at a certain date for a certain price. All right. And so what he would do here is, so I'm just making up numbers. Let's say, and I'm going to use US dollars, even though in the story, the Minervans, of course, are much cooler than that. They don't use dollars. So let's say, you know, the world price of oil is $50 a barrel, but in this island where there's the blockade, people expect it to be, $500 a barrel six months from now because, you know, the blockade is really tight and, you know, they're really turning the screws on these people who are having hostilities with the Western powers. And so if you wanted to buy the right to sell oil at $200 a barrel, then the price of such a contract, the price of something giving you the right to do that would be very low. Right, because most people would say when the, and it was dated for six months from now. Okay, so you're saying for, so again right now, 
everybody expects that six months from now, the market price of oil, the spot price in Minerva is going to be $500 a barrel. And this guy wants to buy contracts that give you the legal right at that time to sell a barrel of oil for $200 a barrel. So basically, you know, somebody else is, is going to buy it from you. Okay. So, but it, it doesn't, you're not required to, that's the thing. So that's the difference. That's why you're not just selling a, a forward contract. It's not like you're finding a counterparty and that person saying, yes, I agree. When this date rolls around, I'm going to buy this many barrels of oil from you at $200, right? So that would be one way to do it, but a different way that I think would make you more money, a higher rate of return on your investment is if you did, if what you were buying was just the right to, at that time, you can exercise the option. That's why they're called options, call and put options because you don't have to exercise them. They just give you the option, okay? So right now, would people charge a lot for you being able to say that, you know, I, I want the right to be able to sell a barrel of oil at $200 right then, right? And so since people think oil is going to be selling for 500 or thereabouts six months from now, they would say, yeah, go ahead, because there's no way you're going to exercise that option. When the time comes around, if you have barrels of oil to sell and the prevailing spot price is around 500, why would you want to sell it for 200? That would be stupid. And so, yeah, if you want to have a piece of paper that legally gives you the right to sell to me, because I'm the one selling you the, the option, a barrel of oil at 200, when I think it's going to be 500, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll sell you these all day and I, I won't charge you much for them because that's not going to happen. So that's, I'm giving the intuition here. When you actually, folks, when you get into the mathematical treatment and the mathematical finance literature of valuing options and stuff, it's, there's some counterintuitive stuff, but here I'm just giving the intuition of it. Okay, so you would be, so this guy would be able to load up on these put options and not have to spend too much to get them, right? So in other words, people would agree, sure, Six months from now, if you show up and you have physical oil in your possession and you hand it over and you want me to, to you know, contractually now, I have to buy it from you at $200 a barrel. Sure, I'll totally do that. I'll, I'll agree right now to do that since I think oil will be selling around 500. So if I paid 200 to you for it, I would turn around and sell it to the market for five and I would make $300 a barrel. So really what, what that means is, you know, I'm going to sell you these, uh, these put options now pocket the money that you're giving me for them. And then I'm never going to see you again because you're not going to exercise them. They're going to expire worthless in six months. That's the idea. So, and again, they wouldn't charge very much for them because they're so far out of the money is the terminology. All right. So he does that. And then, you know, so he spends a little bit on the front end, like, you know, maybe just a few million dollars just loading up. So now, you know, he can deliver, I don't remember what, what the population of Minerva was and stuff. And I, you know, I did some rough calculations to figure out, but a bunch there, I'll use the scientific term. He buys a bunch of those contracts and then he goes and spends now the real money, which is coming up with a way to defeat the blockade. So that then in practice, six months from now, the price of oil in Minerva is, you know, only whatever, $130. And so he then... Now, armed with that boatload of put options, he can on the open market buy oil at 130, 
and then turn around and go to the people who sold him those options and say, here you go, I'm exercising. You got to pay me 200 now for these things. And so he makes $70 a barrel times however many of those put options he bought. And so then he more than recoups whatever he spent on the front end to break the blockade. Okay, so that's, that's the idea. And then more generally, what you could do is real estate prices would respond, right? And so you just think about who wants to own a high-rise apartment or who wants to own a skyscraper in the financial district of this, you know, ANCAP island if it's being blockaded by the Western powers, you know, because you're thinking, oh man, well, you know, once they get starved in the submission, they're going to get taken over. There's going to be UN blue helmets marching through the streets. And so you'd think that investors around the world wouldn't want to put too much of their capital into this place. So real estate prices would be low, but then, you know, this enterprising man realizes if I can turn the situation around and then all of a sudden make it look like, oh no, actually maybe this rugged little island will hold its own and it won't get conquered. Now all of a sudden real estate prices are going to shoot way up. And so then he can do a similar trick where, yeah, he could just buy land and then capture the price appreciation that way. But again, that's somewhat crude. There he benefits if land goes up even 3%. But what if he has a much more specific tailored prediction and he says, no, it's not just that I think in the future land in Minerva is going to sell for a higher price than it does right now. What I think is starting six months from now, real estate is going to be at least 300% higher than it is right now. And so if he wants to get more specific like that, then he can buy call options on real estate in Minerva, Okay. And with, you know, the specific dates built in and blah, blah, blah to correspond to what he thinks is going to happen. And so, by the way, just so you understand, like the risk reward profile, if he's off by a little bit, then his options could expire worthless depending on how far out of the money they were, they were designed to be. And so that's why it's, it's riskier to do it that way too. Well, you know, so if he, if he just buys land thinking it's going to go up once people realize I, I figured out how to break the blockade, then even if he's, you know, he thought, oh, land's going to triple or actually quadruple, but suppose it in fact only doubles. So if he designs call options where it really needs to go up 300%, otherwise it doesn't work, well, then he misses out. He, you know, his option, he, he bought whatever he paid for those call options, they expire worthless, it's just out the door. He lo loses all of his investment on that end. Plus, you know, he loses the money he paid to break the blockade. Whereas if he just bought the land outright, then if he was off, then he would still be okay. He would still get, gain that appreciation. So the risk is higher, but then the reward's higher if he hits it, right? As long as it turns out that it falls in the zone, you know, below the threshold he had, had specified in those derivative contracts, then he makes a much higher rate of return on his investment in terms of just narrowly looking at how much did you pay for those call options and then what did they end up yielding for you once you exercised them. And the other thing too is when it comes to something like the real estate and that more generally, that's the standard way I think you could solve public goods problems because like a thing with the, you know, fireworks or pollution, what have you, if some big developer or some financier came in and just went to a bunch of the major property holders in the area and just sold them or he bought call options from them. Okay, so in other words saying to them, like, so let's say right now you own a piece of land 
in this area where there's lots of heavy pollution because the court system is screwy and, you know, it's, it would be just be too difficult to do all kinds of bilateral agreements with the individual residents. So, you know, some guy could just go up to a bunch of the major property owners. And so a piece of property, let's say right now is worth 10 million. But if there were clean air, then more people would want to live in the area and that would push up property prices. And so maybe that would be worth 18 million in, in that different scenario. And so it's not that the, that the guy would have to go up and put 10 million down because that's a lot of money. And also then they have to go through and redesign and like the existing owner would then have to become a tenant and stuff like it'd be a real pain to do all that. So instead he just goes up to the guy and says, what if I buy a call option from you right now to be able to buy your property at 15 million and I can exercise it anytime up through three years from now. So you see how the, the existing owner, that would be a much more attractive thing to sell rather than just selling the land outright. Just like if I'm making this too esoteric for you, you own a house right now. Let's say you live in a house that right now has a market price of 150,000, right? Someone comes along to you and says, look, I'll pay you 180,000 on the spot for your house. You know, you say, oh, gee, mm, maybe I'll think, cause it, yeah, I would be making more than probably it's quote worth and okay, maybe, but then we'd have to move and oh, gee, I just started my job and, and then I have to go, but, uh, but instead the person goes and says, how much, what if I, um, what I want is I don't want to buy your house right now. What I want is the legal ability to buy your house at $250,000 anytime between tomorrow and three years from now, would you sell me that right or that option? And, and I'll, I'll give you whatever, $20,000 right now, just so I have the right to buy your house at 250,000. I think that's the number I said. Whereas right, you know, right now your house is only worth 150. I, I hope I'm seeing the right numbers. I don't remember, I'm just making these up obviously as I'm talking here. So you can see how they're like, whoa, you get a, a boom, a payment right now and then you might just stay in your house anyway, right? It's only, you're only selling the option. You're not actually selling your house. You're just selling the option. And what you're selling is the option for him to give you a much higher price than you think your house is going to be worth in the time frame of this contract, right? So that would be a much cleaner deal and he can much more easily get that from you rather than having to go around and literally buy up all the houses in a neighborhood, okay? So that's, that's the idea there that, a cleaner way that somebody who, you know, if there really was a stupid thing and, and with a lot of these things too, yeah, it's not perfect. But if we're talking about a really egregious Pareto inefficiency to use economic terminology, where the people in the region would be willing to spend whatever, $10 billion for clean air. And it would really only take 1 billion in payments to the factories and stuff to revamp their procedures in order to get the clean air. And so there's that huge gap. Then, the, you know, that's the kind of thing that this technique I'm talking about could easily ameliorate. So that's one idea that I had. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion to remember that Nobel laureate economist who has a column with the New York Times. That's right. It's our good friend, Paul Krugman. Believe it or not, Krugman has not reformed his ways. Arguably... He's become worse since Tom Woods and I discontinued our famous podcast, Critiquing Krugman, first weekly and then bi-weekly. But you know what? You can still recapture some of that zeal for truth and 
skewering that you came to love when you listen to the podcast if you go get the book, Contra Krugman. And to be clear, it's not a transcript of those episodes. These are columns that I wrote over many years critiquing Krugman, and there's a whole list of different subject areas. It's not just Keynesian economics. It's also climate change. All sorts of stuff is in this book. In fact, when I read the initial manuscript, you know, looking for typos and stuff like that, when I was done, I, I just thought, you know, should we just hang up the show here? Because what more needs to be said? I almost felt bad for him. It was, it was pretty brutal. And uh, at this point, we have stopped the show. So maybe it was prophetic. To get your hands on this book, go to ContraKrugmanBook.com. I think you're going to like it. All right. And then now when it comes to immigration, so here again, in this story, it was this island. And so it would be, this idea would be perhaps harder to implement for a country like the United States that has much longer borders and things. But in any event, let me just run through it. So the idea is that once this thing gets up and running, the wages most earthlings could earn in Minerva are way higher than they can earn in their home country. Okay, it might not be true for the, you know, the wealthiest people in Switzerland and the United States and so forth, but certainly for most human beings, if they just magically got transported from where they currently live into onto this island and then you know, found an employer there, they would earn way more given their existing skill set and, and so on, you know, way more per hour of their labor. So there's going to be this huge influx, this demand of people trying to get into this, into this island. And also, I thought that maybe a lot of governments would just offload their criminals, right? Like that they would just banish people, exile them to Minerva because, you know, there wouldn't be, like right now, like if some country had a bunch of drug dealers and rapists and whatever, and they just picked them up and dumped them off into some other country, presumably the government of that country would object and, you know, raise diplomatic concerns, they're not sending their best, right? Whereas here, there's no, there's no government of Minerva who, who, you know, who's going to object, right? It's, so, and also, as, as I'll explain in the story, what happens is it's not like, oh, no, the Minervans are sitting ducks for all of these antisocial individuals. Like, no, the Minervan social institutions figure out a way to absorb them into its processes, the body politic, well, it's not really politic, but you get the point, into their society and culture in a way so that even the convicted criminals who can't stay in other status societies can exist peacefully with the Minervans, okay? And so the way here now I'm saying more than was in the novel because I've thought about it more and I, I have more nuance and stuff, but the idea is at first, you know, people just show up on the docks. And that's why I was saying it might be harder to implement this kind of thing with a country that's got a much bigger border to police. But here, it's, it's not hard to figure out who's coming in, okay? The, the, there's not just a bunch of people sneaking in, but you, you can see where they're coming from, right? Because they have satellites and helicopters flying around. They, they can infrared stuff to be able to see who's coming who's approaching the island, right? They can, they can spot them coming in. All right, so people show up. And, you know, if, if you've got pre-existing ties to existing residents and stuff, then that's, that's a separate thing. And once I talk about what they do with complete strangers, then you'll see why it's a separate thing. So I'm not just 
hand waving there. You'll see why, but postpone that for now. Just right now, let's take the quote worst case scenario where some ship just is approaching Minerva. You know, the 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 people in charge of the the dock owners and stuff, they they see them coming in and they land, and now there's a thousand people from Timbuktu, and we don't know who these guys are. Right. It's, let's again take the worst case scenario. Like it's men aged 16 to 28 and some of them have tattoos and scars and they look really scary and some of them are armed and uh uh-oh what do we do okay well first of all there's going to be very secure containment procedures right where they're going to be steered in by the equivalent of a private coast guard they're going to be funneled into a dock a receiving area that's you know got bulletproof coating and stuff like that and where the personnel are all in body armor right in case the people you know on the raft or on the whatever the ship just start opening fire and then they're going to be processed they're going to be put in holding they're going to be searched you know go through metal detectors whatnot so they're going to be disarmed and then they'll be interviewed by people and, and this is all you're saying well, who's who's in charge of this well the property owners who own the land, you know, the, the coastal region where these ships are coming in, like they would be the ones making these decisions. And why would they do it? Well, because they're going to have deals with the companies that are going to end up employing these people, right? They're going to get a commissions or whatever. So that's why it's worth it to them to go ahead and set this stuff up. And you're wondering, well, who's paying for all this ultimately? Well, the, the incoming immigrants are, right? They're going to end up working and generating enough extra output some of which is going to get used to pay for all the expense of maintaining the body armored personnel and all that stuff. So they, you know, they get separated and and interviewed by people. You can use the word interrogation if you want. And okay, what do you want to do? Okay, what's your skill set? You got a criminal history? Okay, and if they, you know, they'll, they'll have databases and things that are for publicly available information so they can try to, you know, verify people's stories and whatnot. And then there's going to be several companies that will have, you know, personnel programs catering to such people. And, you know, there'll be certain factories and things for people that are just manual laborers or maybe there'll be agriculture. So in the story of Minerva, there wasn't like a lot of agriculture to speak of, but in a more general setting, you know, you could just have people going and picking fruit and stuff. That doesn't take too many, too much of a skill set. And it's not too hard to oversee them or, you know, things like that or go ahead and working on the roads, whatnot. Because, yes, there would be roads in a voluntary society, despite what you may have heard. Okay, so what I think would initially happen is certain companies that could come up with a business model where they use a lot of labor of possibly violent young men would be there and they would be, you know, they would interact with the people who were doing the interviews and whatnot. And they would, you know, people would sort them and say, okay, well, here's your options. You can go work for this company here, picking fruit. You could go work for this company, putting down asphalt. You could go, you know, work for this company over here, fixing the magnets for the flying cars we have here in the voluntary society. Okay. Oh, you've got some construction experience. Okay. Well, there's a new bridge project over here and this is, you know, this would be the foreman and such and that, that, and you know, Keep in mind, we're going to put ankle bracelets on you in this beginning period 
you know, to make sure you don't run off and stuff like that because, you know, we don't, we still don't really know who you are. We're going to go ahead and do background checks as much as we can. But right now you have to understand we don't know who you are. And so are you okay with this? And they, so they would be getting voluntary consent or just otherwise known as consent from these people before they would then go to their new employer. All right. And again, they would, the conditions would be there to try to minimize the problems and the, you know, the, the new places they would go to, the factories and whatever, there wouldn't be a bunch of machetes lying around. Or you know, when they go and pick the fruit, they wouldn't hand out machetes for that purpose because, again, they know these are possibly violent criminals that we're dealing with here. Okay, now, more generally, so I think that's what would happen like in the immediate, like right you know, the first few weeks, what are these people going to do? And they could immediately be put to work and then they can start earning, you know, a living and then paying some of the costs of, and you could, part part of the deal, you know, when they, they went ahead and signed the contract with the company, part of the deal is, okay, in the beginning, you know, your salary is going to have such and such deducted every pay period to pay, you know, the, the docs who processed you and, you know, to support all that infrastructure that went into facilitating that process. Okay. And, and if some of them said, no, I mean, you know, we can talk ultimately, you know, they can say, all right, well, we can put you back on the ship and turn you around and we'll even give you some more fuel to get you out of here, but you you can't stay. <laughs> We're not saying you got to go home, but you can't stay here. All right. So that's ultimately, you know, what they could do if, if, if none of the options presented. But again, it's not just a one size fits all. It's not they just say, you got to go work for this company and pick avocados and we'll pay you, you know, the equivalent of room and board plus one gram of gold per month above just your bare survival. No, there would be options, right? The, the various companies would be competing for workers, just like in the rest of society. It's not just that you have the option of working for one job or one employer. You have multiple employers who are competing for your labor services. And it would be the same thing here. It's just, it would be a smaller set of employers because it would only be those employers who have the ability to incorporate possibly violent criminals into their operations and it would still be profitable for them, right? Because it's, it's harder to produce cars where part of your plant is relying on workers who might literally be serial killers rather than if you assume they're just drawn from the general population. Okay, so that's, that's the way it worked. Now, the more refined solution is, and here, let me just go off on a tangent for a second. Right now, in the real world, right? So this isn't science fiction. This isn't just, you know, me being a Robert. Is it Heinlein? Is that how you say that guy's name? I've seen it in print. What happens right now if you want to drive a car? Well, you have to get insurance. And specifically, you need liability insurance, right? So it's not that you need insurance that if you wreck your car, how do you get your own car fixed? You need to have insurance so that if you wreck somebody else's car, you hit a pedestrian or whatever, that there's at least a basic policy you have enforced to pay a certain amount of money to them if you're the one legally deemed at fault after the accident. All right. And so I think there would be an analog of that in the free society, in the voluntary society, where again, there would be roads. And the, the road owner would say, if you want to drive on this road, you have to have auto insurance, you know, offered by a company that's in our database of reputable companies and it has to have at least coverages of such and such amount. And, you know, I'm not going to talk right now. Well, how would they enforce that or whatever? Okay, but 
states figured out a way to enforce it and so free people could too. So I think that's that's something they could do, right? There's, that's not too shocking. That doesn't seem like it's living in 1984. If the road owner says to to drive on this road, you have to have liability insurance coverage. Hospitals, right now, if you want to be a brain surgeon working at a regular hospital, you have to have medical malpractice insurance in case you do something wrong in the operating room and you get sued, it's not enough that, oh, they might take your house or whatever. Like you have to have actual an insurance policy saying if you as a medical doctor get convicted or if there's just a, not a not criminal trial, but a civil suit and you owe damages to somebody that you have to have an insurance policy to make sure you can pay it at least a large amount. And you can't just say, well, sorry, I don't got any money. You know, that's a condition to be able to, there's, I think the state requires that too, but even in a voluntary society, I imagine the big reputable hospitals, you know, with the most advanced techniques and facilities and the surgeons from the best medical schools around the world, that would be a standard part of the, what they're selling to their patients, their customers, is that yes, if something is to happen and a, and a reputable judge agrees that you, that one of our employees, namely a surgeon owes damages to you or to the, you know, the deceased a state, if you killed somebody and they on the operating table, then our employee, the doctor, has this big insurance policy in place for just such a contingency. So you know you don't have to worry. We can pay up to ten million dollars if if that's what the damages are deemed to be, that kind of thing. All right. So just generalize. And again, so that's what the real world is like right now. So you think you can easily see how that would translate into a voluntary society. It's not that, that insistence or requirement for insurance coverage in the event that you do something wrong, right? So it's not just insurance saying if somebody does something bad to you, you've got your own insurance to help you deal with the unexpected loss. But it's also saying, why should people be more likely to interact with me and to expose themselves to possible harms I may cause? Is because look at, I have an insurance policy that indemnifies you if it's determined by a reputable judge that I did something wrong to you. And so now because I had that insurance policy in force, people are more likely to interact with me. Okay. So I think that could be something that would help grease the wheels of social interaction, at least in certain settings in a voluntary society. So if it's a tiny little town somewhere and everybody knows each other, that probably wouldn't be necessary. But if it's like a major city with people coming and going, then I think you would need like to get into certain, like to get into certain shopping malls or whatnot. You might need to show that you have coverage provided by some reputable insurer so that if you end up shooting up people in the food court or you end up stealing a lot of merchandise and then you, again, you're, there's a, a, a judge, a reputable judge in the right type of court, you know, renders an opinion against you and finds you guilty that we don't have to hunt you down and beat it out of you or hope that you have got a house that we can seize and sell. No, you've got that insurance policy that's in force. That, and the, that was a prerequisite for you coming into the mall in the first place. And so that first and foremost, the victims would be made whole from that insurance policy. And then you know, the insurer could try to figure out what to do with you and, and so forth. And there would be other things that would ensue ramifications, but the initial victims are made whole by the insurance company. Okay. So that's the basic framework. And so then how would this play out 
when new people just show up. Well, at first, you know, no insurance company is just going to say, oh, what's your name? You're so-and-so from Sierra Leone and okay. And you're saying who your family is and we don't know who those people are. We, we try to locate them. We don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, we're, we're not going to go ahead and say, if you get convicted of a crime, we'll pay up to $10 million to your victims. And, and, you, and you don't have any assets to your name right now. You just showed up with the shirt on your back. So you can't pay us anything in terms of a premium right now. And we don't know anything about you. And you're, you know, 22 year old guy. That's very dangerous. We don't, we don't know. All right. In contrast, if it's a 60 year old grandmother from Sierra Leone with, and she's, you know, fleeing something, some conflict or something. And, oh yeah, that makes total sense. And they might give her a policy. And so there'd be certain regions too, I think, that would have different thresholds for how much coverage you would need to be able to get in, right? So just to be able to go into a certain commercial area where, you know, there's outside vendors and things like that and individual store owners, but they might have their own policies, like just to be able to walk on the streets, that sort of thing. Maybe it's just like, yeah, you got to have a policy and have $50,000 in coverage. Again, I'm using dollars for convenience. Whereas to be hired by a big company in a standard like, you know, nine to five type job office setting, you know, maybe you would need a policy that gives up to $5 million in coverage based, you know, if you're convicted of embezzlement or homicide or whatever. Okay. So there'd be different levels. If you're trying to rent a car, they would at least want enough coverage to cover in case you just drive off with the car you know, to, to identify them so they could replace the car, that sort of thing. And so what the way it would work out, you know, for some guy who's just, boom, he's coming, they don't know who the heck this guy is. And he, so he starts working at the factory, you know, they put him to work. He's, he said he's got some automotive skills and they, you know, they put him in the factory and he's assembling parts that are going to make car engines. And they of course have cameras and stuff in there and they've got people there, like a lot of security and stuff ready to go ahead and and pounce with nets and things like that to de-escalate a situation in case fights break out on the factory floor because these guys, you know, could be from different area, you know, rival gangs or something as far as they know. And so initially that's what they're doing, but they are paying, you know, they, they might have some kind of deal with an insurance company and they're, they have a policy eventually, you know, so maybe after a few weeks or whatever, and they they show up on time to, you know, to the job. And by the way, they would be like sleeping on site, right? So that's what I'm saying. These companies would in a sense be taking physical possession of these new workers. The, again, here, I'm not, this wouldn't apply to everybody who shows up on the docks. This would apply to people where they have no clue who they are. And in fact, they might be convicted felons that other governments are just offloading you know, into the voluntary society. Just says, we don't want to deal with these people here. Just get exiled to these nut jobs over here who don't even have a government. Ooh, Looney Tunes, right? So that that's, again, I'm, I'm focusing in this episode on the quote, worst case scenario. What I'm saying is not what would happen if some middle-class family got a better job offer and decided to move. It would be a much smoother process because the insurance companies would be able to do a lot more research on them and in, in you know, know, okay, yeah, who's this is this guy is he's got a stable work history, the wife's a school teacher, that 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 the kids are in private school and that that we don't he's got yeah, he was we got three speeding tickets, otherwise a record clean. Okay, that's and then the other big thing is too, the 
incoming immigrants, really what they would want to be able to do is post a big amount of money on deposit that would be sitting there as a fund that could go ahead and pay for any damages they get convicted of. Okay. And so in an insurance perspective, what that's called is net amount at risk. Okay. So if you hit, and this is why I said, like, I know the logistics of this better with the whole life policy. So let me just very briefly explain how that works. So a whole life insurance policy, let's just say you you take it out for a million dollars, right? So you're 25 years old and they come up with and say, okay, every month you're going to pay us such and such in premium for a million dollars in death benefit coverage. Okay. And, and so every month until you reach age 121, if you're still alive, you owe us this flat amount per month is a premium payment. And anytime between now and age 121, when you die, if you die, we immediately pay the beneficiary that you name in your policy a million dollars. And if you happen to reach age 121, then the policy matures and we give you the million dollars at that point. And then, you know, our our dealings are done. Okay. And so what, what is the insurance company doing? Well, is there initially there's a million dollars at risk with you, right? Because if you, if you pay that first premium, then get hit by a bus next week, they owe basically the million dollars. I mean, minus whatever the the monthly premium, it's not going to be a lot of money. All right. So they're out the million, but over time, just the nature of how the actuarial science works they're in a sense overcharging you on the front end, right? You're paying more when you're in your 20s as a premium for a whole life policy than you would pay for a 10-year term policy with also had a million dollars in death benefit coverage. Okay, so in a sense, it's like, if you want to think of it this way, the pure insurance cost is much lower than what your premium is on a whole life policy in the early years. And so they're taking that difference as it were and investing it in assets. And so you've got an accumulating, the, the insurance company is managing an accumulating stockpile of financial assets that it's buying with your incoming premium payments every month. That's in a sense earmarked to quote, back up your policy, right? I'm speaking loosely, obviously. And that's also why you have a growing, what's called a cash surrender value. If you decide after eight years of paying into this thing, you know what, I want to bail out I want to be done with this. I don't want this whole life policy anymore. You just walk away and they give you what's called the cash surrender value at that point. So the longer you're in, bigger that cash surrender value grows to be. Okay, so there'd be, I think, something comparable or it could be something comparable in a voluntary society when a new immigrant comes in where he or she signs a contract like that with the insurance company that is designed to cover your victims in case you get convicted of a crime. and as you're paying your premiums on that thing, the amount they have is growing. And by the way, you could also surrender that. If you decide, you know what? I want to leave the voluntary society. I don't need this coverage anymore because I want to go back to a status society where the government just tells everybody, oh, don't worry about criminals. They don't need, you know, your, your fellow citizens don't need an insurance policy because if they do something bad, you can trust our court system and justice. I mean, it's called a justice system. So you know justice is forthcoming. Trust us. We got it under control. If you can't trust politicians, who can you trust? right? So if you were going to decide to leave the voluntary society and go back to a statist one, you don't need that insurance coverage anymore. So then at that point, you could surrender the policy and they would give you, you know, whatever assets they had accumulated on your behalf while you were paying into the thing. But the point is, as that's growing, the net amount at risk shrinks, right? So by the point at which there's $300,000 in financial assets that the insurance company is managing on your behalf, 
And so you, know, you have a cash surrender value of 300,000. If the death benefit is just a million, well, now there's only really 700,000 at risk, right? Because if, if you were to die, I'm, I'm talking about life insurance right now. If you were to die at that point, they owe your beneficiary a million dollars, but they already are sitting on 300,000 that was in a sense your money that they were just managing on your behalf. And so the pure insurance that they had to worry about was really only 700,000 at that point because that was the net amount at risk. And so the amount that they have to implicitly take out of your incoming premium payments, which are always flat in the whole life policy design, to cover for the pure insurance risk, that's one reason that that goes down over time. Now there's a countervailing force because as you get older, your mortality risk goes up. And so those two things work at odds or, you know, work against each other. But with the, you know, the, the criminal thing now switching to the idea of a hypothetical voluntary society where they have contracts like this, but they, they don't insure against you dying. They insure against you being convicted in a reputable court of a civil or criminal damage claim. Over time, as you, you know, as they're managing those incoming premium payments and building up financial assets on your behalf, the amount at risk shrinks. Right. So they have to, so for your given flat premium payment now, less and less of that has to cover the pure insurance risk. And more of it is just they're investing assets on your behalf. And so, like the, so the internal rate of return on your investment gets better over time, if that's the way you want to think about it. Okay. And so it turns, it's less and less like an insurance company and more and more just like a brokerage firm or, you know, some, a mutual fund or something that's just managing your, contributions on your behalf and steering them into certain financial assets. Okay. And so, and also, like I say, so that the net amount of risk is shrinking, but also the more they get to know you, then the better they can price the risk. And especially in general, as people get older, they're less likely to be criminals or to commit criminal acts. And so that's, you know, two things working in your favor. The longer they get, to, you know, the longer you're literally paying your dues. Okay, so that's why that would be the transition. So over time, these people who at first, we have no clue who they are. Yeah, they would have to be pretty well contained. But they start, you know, eventually an insurance company is willing to take a risk on with them, give them coverage. They start paying premiums. And then the net amount at risk shrinks over time with each incoming premium payment. They get more history on the person. They can just see... You know, and so the ones that are genuinely law-abiding and nonviolent and so forth, then, you know, and, and they might even update the policy too. You know, I mean, they might convert it into something else with a much lower premium once they get, get a more established history. It's sort of like if you bought a whole life policy when you were a smoker and you were 100 pounds overweight and then you just quit cigarettes and, and lost a bunch of weight, you might want to surrender that policy and open up a new policy or something. Okay, you know, I... I don't know the numbers enough to know what would be the scenarios in which that would be advantageous, but that's, that's kind of what I, you know, that's what it would be like. All right. So I think that's the way it would work. And again, I think I briefly said this, but just to clarify. So I think there would be different regions would have different thresholds of saying, this is how much coverage you would need to come in here. So if there was some gated community that was real uptight and fancy that, you know, you, you might need a pretty big, level of coverage to be able to even have permit, you know, even have the option of buying a home in that community or, you know, renting a room or whatever. 
Whereas other places might be rowdy and there might be certain districts, red light districts and whatever, where it's like, yeah, anybody can come here. We don't care. But, you know, people would know if you go in there, you know, you, <laughs> you might get in a knife fight, just so you know. So that that's the way it works. So we, I think the areas to which you would have access would gradually broaden as you put more and more money into this thing. And so notice too, it's not like that would just be wasted money, right? If you were never convicted of a serious crime, then at some point, you know, as, as you got older, I mean, they might even change the rules. Like there might be something saying, yeah, if you're a 22-year-old male, unmarried, blah, 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 then, you know, you need to have $5 million in coverage to come and rent a room in this neighborhood. Whereas if you're an 80-year-old grandmother with arthritis, then, you know, you, you need $70,000 in coverage in case you cheat at bridge or something. Okay, so there's, there's those elements too, right? It's not just a flat number. Like they would might calibrate it to the demographics of the individual. So I'm just saying over time, this isn't like wasted money. It's just, you'd have this accumulating thing. And so, yeah, if you then, somebody when he was younger built up this huge amount and then, you know, that, and that's in a sense sitting there that is, is an available buffer if he's convicted of crimes. And then as he gets older, the thresholds come down. Well, then, you know, he would have the ability to draw down some of that money that the insurance company was managing on his behalf, right? So if, you know, he had built up and he had $800,000 sitting in there and now he wants to go move to a community that only requires $500,000 in coverage, then he can go ahead and draw down three hundred grand to buy the house in that region if he wants, you know, now that he's 70 years old. Okay, so, and then ultimately when you die, assuming you didn't go down in a hail of gunfire because you were robbing a bank, then, you know, you would have specified in there what to do in the event that I die with the am amount available that then goes to my estate or that goes to these named beneficiaries and whatnot, All right? So again, it's not a life insurance policy. It's a policy saying if you are convicted of criminal or civil liability, then this policy is in place to at least deal with the first, you know, wave of, of damages to absorb that up to the, uh, how much we got in this policy. Okay. So if you don't, if you never use it and then you end up dead, so now you can't commit any crimes because you're dead. Well, then this thing would then kick in and, and distribute what would have been the cash surrender value at the, on the day of your death to the people you specified or the institutions you specified. Okay. So that's the idea. That's a good spot to wrap up. Thanks as always for your attention and I will see you folks next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>